Father, as we've just sung in prayer, we pray that you would indeed open up our eyes. You would show us the truth that frees us, the light that chases the lies away from our hearts. Father, we want to meet Jesus now in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what single word has the potential to have Christians quaking nervously in their boots, the power to induce guilt and hopelessness? Uh, The word I'm thinking of is not death, it's not cancer, it's not Britain's Got Talent. It is the word evangelism, talking to people about Jesus. How does that make you feel? Now, I'm a full-time paid gospel minister, and you would think, your evangelism for people like that is easy. You know, they're always just having conversations uh, with friends and neighbours about uh, Jesus. They can turn a conversation just like that. It's a hot day today. Yes, it's a hot day today, but not as hot as the fire of God's judgment. (laughs) Do you want to hear how to avoid that? And so on. Well, that's not quite me, I have to say. But often, I do find myself a little tongue-tied, a little unsure of how to put things to somebody, uh, worried about how somebody might respond. Now, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. I believe that the most uh, important news that the world can ever hear and has ever heard is that news. I believe it is the best news ever. I believe that of all the needs and struggles that the world faces and that my non-Christian friends and loved ones face, the deepest need they have is to know Jesus. I believe the consequences of not trusting Jesus are eternally catastrophic. And yet, despite that clear and fervent belief, I still struggle to tell people, and I guess much of the reason that uh, I I chicken out uh, at times, has something to do with fear. Maybe I fear rejection. I fear I won't have quite the right words to say. I fear I will say something crass or inappropriate. It's just easier to keep quiet. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, does that ring any bells for your own experience in your everyday life? If you're not yet a Christian or you're not quite sure where you stand, that might sound a bit odd. Now, why would a Christian struggle to tell people? If, If you think this is true... This surely is the most life-changing message the world has ever heard. Surely if you believe that, you would tell people, wouldn't you? But the thing is, and I'll let you into a little secret, also known as pointing out the blatantly obvious, Christians are not perfect. Christians are works in progress. God gives us a new start, a new life, a new heart when we put our trust in Jesus. But until he returns, we continue to struggle with sin, with fear, with things that stop us from living as we know God wants us to live. Now, of course, there are some people for whom evangelism comes naturally, temperamentally, and and, and if that's you, praise God. And your job is to encourage the rest of us, help us to see how to do it. In, In the passage we heard this morning from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues to unfold his mouth-watering manifesto for life in the kingdom of God. He continues to show what it means to be the new people of God, centred on him. And he has some words of encouragement for God's people. And that's what we see, first of all, 
if you look on the sheets, we have a new identity, salt and light. A new identity, salt and light. Now, there are some words of challenge here in these verses, and we'll come to them in a moment. But first, we need to make sure we don't miss this encouragement and assurance and promise that these verses bring, even as we struggle to share our faith and make Jesus known. There are two particularly encouraging words in verse 13, and they get repeated again in verse 14. Can you see what the most encouraging words might be in verse 13 and 14? You are. You are. Not you must be, not while you ought to be. You are. In grammatical terms, it's indicative, not imperative, if that means anything to you. In fact, that has been the tone of the whole of this Sermon on the Mount so far, as we began to see last week. There haven't been any commands yet, just a description of who God's people already are. Remember verse 1, if you look back, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's left the crowds behind. He's got a small group with him now as the sermon begins. And that's important to see because on the one hand it means that these aren't a list of requirements about what you have to do to get into Jesus' kingdom. It's not the admissions policy. It's the prospectus for what life in the kingdom looks like for those who have already entered. So on the one hand, it's not a list of requirements, but on the other hand, it's clear that this also isn't some kind of advanced class for super-Christians who've already proved themselves worthy. Because who are these disciples? Well, they are the same people, if you look back at the end of chapter 4, that Jesus has just called to follow him. They've literally just begun in their Christian life, following this man who's called them away from their nets to follow them to follow him. This, this, this sermon that he now gives them on the mountain is Discipleship 101, you might say. It's the first thing he wants to tell them as they begin this journey following him. It's not the advanced class. You are the salt of the earth. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? This is one of those terms that's entered the English language, hasn't it? Uh, like some of those Beatitudes we saw last week. Now, actually, sometimes today, if we say that somebody is the salt of the earth, what we often mean, at least in British English, I don't know whether other um, people use this in other parts of the world, but we mean that they're sort of decent or reliable. That's what that phrase has come to mean in the English language today, the salt of the earth. But actually, that's pretty much irrelevant to what Jesus is talking about here when he uses that term. So we need to do a bit of digging here because... Um, very often when people look at these verses and think about the salt of the earth, they, they, it gets interpreted simply according to whatever the person reading this text um, thinks of when they think about salt. So people say salt is a preservative. Ah, Christians are to preserve the world from moral decay. Oh, somebody might say salt is a flavour enhancer. So, if you were at uh, Andy Palmer's commissioning service, Andy was our, our, our associate minister for the last few years, he had his new uh, commissioning service in Balham on Tuesday for his new church, and would you believe it, they served quail's eggs. I think Balham's trying to out-Hampstead Hampstead in some way. <laughs> <coughs> and uh, they served these quail's eggs with a little salt dip. 
and you sort of dip the quail's egg in the salt to enhance the flavour. And so people say, well, you know, Christians are, are salt of the earth. Are oh, they to enhance the culture around them? But the thing is, according to the Malden Salt Company, you ought to know, there are actually 14,000 different uses of salt. And if you just sort of choose them at random, you can end up making this verse say pretty much anything you like. Well, salt, salt is deadly if you have too much of it, isn't it? So Christians are to speak words of judgment as well as grace in their evangelism. On the other hand, well, having too little salt in your diet is also fatal, isn't it? So Christians are to bring life to the world. Well, then uh, salt can be used as a water softener. So what does that mean? Well, obviously Christians are to soften things and calm things down in the world. Now, we could go on, couldn't we? None of those are good examples of how to read the Bible. The fact is the Bible interprets itself. If you want to know, you come across a bit in the Bible and you think, I don't understand what this particular verse means. The best thing is to think, well, let's look at the rest of the Bible and see how that phrase or whatever is used in the rest of the Bible. And that will help me to understand what's going on here, rather than just sort of plucking something out of our minds about what it might mean. So how does the rest of the Bible talk about salt? Well, in the Old Testament, we find a few uh, different references. Now, the most common reference to salt in the Old Testament is to the salt sea, the Dead Sea. That doesn't really help us. But after that, well, there's, there's a few things. There's Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt. Uh, she was assaulted. Boom, boom. Uh, but uh, that, uh, there's a reference to the practice of rubbing newborn babies in salt in Ezekiel chapter 16. But actually, the, the most common occurrence after the salt sea, or of the word salt, is in the context of God making a covenant with his people. God making a covenant with his people. We, that was there in the opening verse. If you see that on the front of the service sheet from 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5. God has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt. And the salt seems to be a sign of how the covenant is eternal. It's forever because it's a covenant of salt. And it's the same in Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, which talks about an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord. So when we come to Matthew chapter 5, and we hear that in Jesus' kingdom, his people are the salt of the earth... There seems to be some kind of reference to the covenant that God made with his people. But the point now is that that covenant is centred not on the, uh, the temple and the religious leaders, the establishment of the day. It's centred on this ragtag group of fishermen following Jesus. And that's the kind of argument that comes increasingly into focus through Matthew's Gospel. Yesterday, you were a ragtag group of fishermen, Jesus is saying. Today, you are the salt of the earth. Take heart from your new status as God's covenant people. And then it's the same with the light of the world. If I asked you, who does the Bible say is the light of the world? You might well say it's Jesus. 
But what is true of Jesus, and we, you know, that's from John 8, verse 12, I think, uh, Jesus is the light of the world. But what, what is true of Jesus becomes also true of his followers when we put our trust in him, because we are then united with him. We are in Christ. He is the light of the world, and so then are his followers. And we heard that promised in the first reading from Isaiah chapter 60. Did you hear that? Let me just remind you of some of those verses. Your light has come. Nations will come to your light. You will look and be radiant. Now, we might look at ourselves and kind of think, well, hmm, I don't see much light in here. I know my heart, I know my actions, my fears, the things that stop me from talking about Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you are, you are the light of the world. You are not what you were. You have been transformed by Jesus, by the gospel. If you're a Christian today, you are radiant And we say, yes, but, you know, I find it so hard to be the light. I have these sort of half-hearted attempts to talk about Jesus with my colleagues and my friends, and they don't go very well, and then I give up. But you can be sure of one thing. If you've let it be known in some small way to your colleagues or your friends or whoever that you are a Christian, you just dropped it into conversation one day, they will be watching and if you seek to live faithfully, they will spot that. They will see the difference. They will see the light of the world. You are the light of the world. See, so much of our efforts at evangelism, talking to people about Jesus, start in the wrong place. We start with the ought. We say, you know, come on, you're not speaking enough to non-Christians. Do it more, do it better. And we look for techniques that will help. Now, I came across a kind of picture of this last week as we think about this. It becomes a bit like going to a silent disco. Have you ever been to one of those? Now, that's not just a silent room. You, you have headphones. And they're sort of Bluetooth headphones. are very clever. And so everybody's got the same music on their headphones. But when you walk into the room, all you see is a bunch of people kind of dancing. I won't try now. And, um, you, and you can't hear anything. But, you know, imagine you go in and you think, I want to join in with this. And so you think, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and copy what everyone else is doing. And you try and kind of keep up and you can kind of follow the moves a bit. And it works for, for, for a minute or two, but you can't keep up because you can't hear the music. You're not getting the vibe. You're not there. Uh, it's not going to help you make the, the, the right moves. And trying to do evangelism without recognising first who we are, it's like trying to copy those dance moves without the music. It just becomes mechanical. Trying to keep up, but you'll fall behind. See, we can see what we ought to be doing, but first we need to see who God has made us to be. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So that then when we struggle, we don't just give up and say, oh, well, look, I'm just going to leave this to other people. It's not really for me. It's not my thing. We don't have that option. Christians are the salt of the earth, created and called to transform the world. We are the light of the world, created and called to shine brightly 
in the darkness. Whether we like it or not, that is who we are. So get on with living it. That's the main thing we need to see in these verses. But that then leads to two practical implications that these verses uh, spell out, which we'll look at briefly now. And those two practical implications are kind of two ends of a spectrum that you can go on this. They're about, on the one hand, either blending in with the salt of the earth, or they are about hiding away with the light of the world. So, So then, number two, don't blend in. Don't blend in. This is about the salt of the earth. If salt loses its saltiness, it is useless. Now, I don't know if we've got any chemists here. Uh, David Ashman's downstairs, I think. But um, technically, I'm told that salt cannot actually lose its saltiness. It's a stable compound, and that doesn't easily change its form. But the thing is, of course, it can easily be diluted by sand and mud until it is spread out so thinly that it's no longer effective. It can blend in with its surroundings and be lost. And that sadly was the story of God's people in the Old Testament. They were the salt of the earth with their covenant promises. And the intention was that they would not keep God's blessing to themselves, but that they would be a blessing to the nations. Exactly the, actually what Gareth was talking about in the children's talk this morning. But it, instead of doing that, they became like the other nations. They blended in until they were no longer distinctive. They asked for a king like the other nations had. They were willfully refusing to acknowledge that God was their true king. They worshipped the idols and gods of the nations around them rather than sticking with Yahweh who had called them. They became watered down and indistinguishable from the world around them. Now, that was God's people in the Old Testament. Isn't that still exactly the same danger for us today? Often it's the desire to be relevant, to, you know, to, to not hide away, to, um, to, to sort of be out there in the world. But the problem is it, it, it ends in this kind of indistinguishable blending in. You know, we think, I I don't want to be the kind of person who's known for being a killjoy. I want people to know Jesus, not think of me as a spoil sport. So I'm going to fully engage with the social life of my colleagues. And whatever they do, I will do, because I want to realise, I want them to realise that I'm with them. I'm not against them. And then suddenly we realise we've lost all self-control and we're joining in with the drunken revelry or whatever it is that we would never have dreamed of in the cold light of day. Now, if we're in danger of doing that as individuals, churches as a whole, or even whole denominations, are in danger of doing the same thing. See, it's striking that in the big moral issues of the day that the national church is debating, much of the church is simply trying to do its best to keep up with what the culture is doing. So what happens in the end is that the world is transforming the church, rather than the church transforming the world. What good is that, says Jesus, if the salt loses its saltiness? And the tragedy is that this is, this is often done with the best of intentions in the name of uh, relevance to the culture. And yet, instead of churches growing as they do that, they continue to shrink. Because the message they preach is, is indistinguishable from what the world is saying anyway. So why, you know, why do I need to sacrifice a Sunday lie-in 
to hear what I can already hear day in, day out on the news and on my favourite soaps and box set dramas and the rest of it. Where are we in danger of simply blending in as individuals and as a church? What can we do to remain distinctive with our colleagues and neighbours? It might start with something as simple as just leaving a little Bible on your desk. Or when you talk about your weekends, you talk about Sunday, not just Saturday. Oh, I didn't know you go to church. What do you do that for? We are the salt of the earth. We are God's covenant people. He wants to use us to transform his world, not to conform to it. But if that's a temptation for some of us, for others the temptation goes the other way. That's why we need to hear about the light. Don't hide away, thirdly. Don't hide away. We, we, we can be so clear that we ought not to be blending in, that we maintain a distinctive life at all costs, to the point where we're not mixing with any non-Christians anymore. You know, we've got our Christian friends and our engagement with the world around us amounts to kind of tutting at the news every so often. But you are the light of the world. Now, Jesus spells out the implications of that in two different ways. With the image of a city on the hill, if you look, uh, verse 14. And uh, again, you see, that was Jerusalem, wasn't it? It was meant to be a city on a hill to which all nations would flock. But it had lost its way. It had ceased to be that light. And yet Jesus says, well, that ought not to be, because a city is something that cannot hide. Nor do you light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Imagine the confused looks in home base. Now, excuse me, I'm, I'm looking for a cover for this lamp. Oh, well, certainly you'll find the lampshades over there. No, I don't, I don't mean a lampshade. I want a proper cover for it to keep the light in. I don't want any lights getting out at all. That's absurd, isn't it? In an age of, of light pollution and, and, and phones that double as handy pocket torches, we really take light for granted, don't we? But both the city on the hill and the lamp giving light to everyone in the house, in verse 15, they, they remind us of how powerful light can be in total darkness. I did some survival training a couple of years ago on the uh, summer camp that I helped with. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't about surviving on a summer camp, it was surviving in the wild. If we can ever get in the wild in the UK, I'm not sure we can, but um, we learned that if you're lost in pitch darkness, your, the torch on your phone, that little tiny light, will be seen for miles around, if there isn't anything in the way, all the way to the horizon, which is about five miles away from, from a sort of average height. You stand there just like this. You'll be seen for five miles. And actually, if you can get higher off the ground and you, and you increase the coverage of the light by kind of waving it in a big circle, you will go many, many miles further with that single tiny pinprick of light in the darkness. See, in the face of light, darkness has no hope at all. Light always wins unless you hide it under a bowl then the darkness carries on being dark. And that can happen in a couple of ways for Christians. 
One is that, especially as time goes on, you know, actually many Christians just don't really know any non-Christians, not know well. They might, you know, have acquaintances, even just sort of people you work with, but do you really know them? Do you know the names of their, their families, their children? Do you know what's going on in their lives? So we can hide away among the, the, the busyness of church activities. I was saying at the, the training morning we had yesterday for small group and children's and youth leaders, that I heard about a church where in order to be a member, you also had to be a member of some other group in the local community. And they had a mission which went really well because of those links that every church member had. It's something to think about, isn't it? I think it's probably a bit different in North London from some places. But are we finding it too easy to hide away and just sort of doing lots of Christian activity? so that the light is being hidden under the bowl. I think the other thing that makes us hide away, the, hide the light away under a bowl, actually is just our own fear. Now, we spend a lot of time these days worrying about whether Christians are going to continue to have freedom of speech. But actually, the reality is that many of us don't actually need the world to censor us because we're better at silencing ourselves than any totalitarian regime. Isn't that true? See, we hide the lights behind our fears. That is what stops us from radiating out what God has put in our hearts, fearing other people more than we fear God. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says something really helpful about this. It's an easy verse to remember. Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4. Matthew 1, 2, 3, 4, 12, 34. Matthew 12, 34, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we want to deal with those fears that stop us from speaking up, the place to start is not with more techniques, another sort of different gospel presentation or whatever, uh, tips on how to share our testimony or turn a conversation to Christian things. No, the place to start is here in our hearts. Because think of, think of something that you're passionate about, apart from Jesus, if you're a Christian. Think of something that, you, that once you start talking about it, you can't stop. We, we've all got something, haven't we? For me, it's the production of freshly ground and expertly brewed espresso coffee. See, I will wax lyrical about that all day if you want me to. Because coffee has grabbed my affections. Now, we'll all have something like that. Maybe it's a football team, a hobby, a person even. But doesn't Jesus matter infinitely more than flat whites or the fate of Arsenal or whatever? Doesn't he? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If the mouth is not speaking, the place to look is the heart. Go back to basics with the gospel, with Jesus. What has he done? Do I believe it? Does does it matter? How much does it matter? How do all these other things compare? So now I will go and tell. Now perhaps we've been put off by people doing evangelism crassly in the past. And we think, well I don't want to be that person that is brash and insensitive and, and unloving. And so we don't do it at all. But here's the thing, maybe you've got that image in your mind of that sort of stereotypical evangelist who does it crassly. And compare that and think of somebody who in your life has been the most influential in your coming to faith in Jesus. 
Maybe it was a parent, a close friend, or just a stranger. But if being crass and brash is what you fear about evangelism, I'd be surprised if that person that you consider the most influential on you coming to faith was like that. After all, you listened to them and you took them seriously. So don't, be, don't sort of think, well, it's, I've got to be like a sort of generic evangelist. No, be like that person who influenced you and helped you. Actually, when it comes to telling people about Jesus, there's no one-size-fits-all way of doing it. See, there are those who are very bold and they regularly stand on Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, engaging especially with Muslims, which is what happens there. Um, and perhaps they're the kind of people who talk to strangers on trains and they just, you know, they're always just speaking about Jesus. Praise the Lord for them. But then there are others who are great at inviting people to events. They're just brilliant at getting not just one or two, but tens of people to come along to whatever um, evangelistic event is going on. And that's why we, we, we try and put events on like, like that regularly. So there are always things to invite people too. There'll be a, a barbecue on, on the day of the um, South End Green Festival, the 24th of June, that evening. There'll be a barbecue to invite people to. There's going to be the All Souls uh, Orchestra Summer Concert again this year on the 7th of July with an evangelistic talk. Think about who you can invite to those. There are those who are intellectual evangelists. You know, they, they basically they need to join a book group. They need to join a film club. They need to engage with people on a deeper level rather than just superficially. There are those who are wonderful befrienders, like patiently walking with uh, non-Christian friends over many years through good times and bad, slowly turning those friendships into gospel opportunities. There are those with a particular testimony to tell that grabs attention, a life where Jesus has worked in a particularly obvious and clear way. And you'll be able to tell me other ways in which we can make Jesus known too. See, we're not all the same. We've each got different ways of doing this. But if we think we have to conform to some sort of stereotype of doing evangelism, we will stop and we will hide that light under a bowl. We are the light of the world, says Jesus. We have a message to share, a message that gives real hope in the face of all that is broken about our world. Hope in the face of death and sin and weakness and hopelessness, despair. A message that God has given us as his ambassadors to be the salt of the earth, his covenant people, to be the light of of the world. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the encouragement of knowing this new identity that you've given us if we're followers of Jesus, that we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. You've given us the gospel. You've changed our hearts. And so we pray that we would neither blend in 
nor hide away, but we would be the salt of the earth and we would be the light of the world. Help us in all the different contexts in which we live our lives. Help us as a church to think what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in London and in the context of the wider world. Help us to think of our own response to these words. And if we're still thinking these things through and not sure where we stand with you, pray that you would give us clarity. Open our eyes so that we understand what it is that you call human beings into this life of this mouth-watering kingdom. of acting as your salt and light in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.